So, Jay, I've been thinking about the Age of Apocalypse. Welcome to my life, Miles. Uh, The Summers Brothers were raised by Sinister in that timeline, right? After the plane crash, yeah. So their early history is the same? Basically. The plane crash is a little different. They were fleeing Apocalypse, not going on a vacation. But the rest is pretty much the same. So there are still Starjammers in the Age of Apocalypse. Because I feel like Corsair would have fit pretty well into the Glamis timeline. To a point. He did survive the plane crash and run around as a space pirate, and he did end up crash-landing back on Earth after Scott and Alex had grown up, so they've got that in common. Wait, but in the main timeline, the X-Men found him in Age of Apocalypse... Sinister. Oh, damn. Yeah. He eventually managed to escape, but Sinister sent a bunch of high-level operatives after him. Did he ever find the kids? Eventually, but by that point, there was one hell of a trail of carnage. Because of the guys tracking him? Because he was a brood queen. What?! J. Rachel Edden. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 114 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. Okay, so here we are once again in our brave new world of being past Inferno. How's it going, Jay? I mean, it's so bright. So colorful, except it's not, because this is the second week in a row that we're doing a dark, gritty, noir Wolverine series. We totally are, and I am super excited about this one. We're going to be covering a four-issue miniseries called Havoc and Wolverine Meltdown today, and it's been one of my favorites ever since I was a kid. Yeah, remember when we told you about Beauty and the Beast and how it was this just brilliant, forgotten legend, and you read it, and suddenly you understood and doors opened before you? This is like that. This is one of those series that just, it blows my mind how thoroughly it has been forgotten. I mean, it's been collected. But... You know, it doesn't have an artist's edition, it doesn't get cited, I think it's turned up in the following continuity in the almost 30 years since, twice. Well, three times if you count Age of Apocalypse, but I'm not sure that I would. But yeah, seriously, it's been referenced almost never, and it really should be one of the iconic Wolverine stories, and certainly one of the iconic Havoc stories, because dude really could use some. Well, and it's one of those stories that should be mentioned in the same breath as other really artistically daring books of its era. It's a title that we should be talking about when we talk about things like Sienkiewicz, when we talk about other really definitive, really genre-breaking and tradition-defying artists whose looks and whose styles very much define specific narratives. We should be talking about Muth and Williams. Now, Havoc and Wolverine Meltdown was published around 88, 89. The internet's a little vague as far as where it comes in relation to other stories. So were the books themselves, and that's fascinating, actually. We should talk a little bit about the publication history here because— we haven't actually been able to track down a couple of specific solid answers that place it definitively. Right. So in theory, according to the dates, it came out before Inferno, but it makes much more sense in the context of coming out after. Similarly, it supposedly came out before a Marvel Comics Presents run that we'll talk about momentarily. But once again, it makes more sense if it comes out after. So eh, hard to say. Books were occasionally postdated, especially ones that were based on projected rather than actual publication deadlines. And we've also seen a number of those stories, I think both this and the MCP story, given different dates in different sources. So if you have definitive information about the order in which those first came out, or specifically the order in which they were conceived and created, we would be really curious to find out about that. Tentatively, in terms of what makes sense, we are placing these in the order Inferno, MCP, Meltdown. Now, Havoc and Wolverine Meltdown was actually published under the Epic Comics imprint. 
Sometimes publishers will have separate imprints. So for instance, DC with Vertigo, where they'll put more mature stuff or kid stuff or whatever, stuff that doesn't quite fit into their main line. And that was the case here. Epic sometimes published a bunch of creator-owned stuff. So for instance, they had a lot of Clive Barker stories. They had Wild Cards by George R.R. Martin. Yes, that George R.R. Martin. But they'd also do stuff with existing superhero characters. My impression of Epic was very much and very specifically actually as Marvel's Vertigo because it was a mix of more mature books and creator-owned titles. It tended to be a little bit more artistically daring. And yeah, tonally, there was a lot of overlap too. I mean, the two artists we're going to be talking about here are artists with whom, for instance, I was first familiar because of their work with Vertigo. So you have Williams on a ton, a really iconic run of Hellblazer covers, which is where I first saw his stuff and Muthan Sandman. You also had books like Silver Surfer Parable and Electra Assassin in the epic line. It ran from, I think, 82 to 94, and then again from 03 to 04. But um, this, for me, is the the standout from it. That being said, I'm biased because, you know, X-Men fan, but still. I think it's actually where Kabuki started as well. That and this are the two things that I associate most closely with it. You may be right. Yeah, Kabuki's been at a few different publishers, but I yeah. think I might have started here. Okay, so there's our epic comics background. There's our general background. We're going to have a lot of different background stuff. And we're going to jump around a little bit, but let's go back into continuity. Let's go to the comics narrative and talk about the Marvel Comics Presents story that you mentioned earlier. But first, previously on X-Men. So we are placing this in the relatively early aftermath of Inferno, um, MCP again, and then Meltdown. The X-Men are in Australia. They are presumed dead by most of the world, although they are finally aware that X-Factor is not in fact evil, and X-Factor is finally aware that the X-Men are in fact alive. Now, for Wolverine, half of the main characters of this series, he's got a relatively stable status quo. I mean, his background is bonkers, of course, and he's doing 10 different things every single day because he's hanging out with the X-Men and is in his own series and is guest starring across half the Marvel Universe. But for the most part, he's the same good old Logan that we know and love and are slightly scared that we're going to get impaled by. And at this point, Wolverine is also a much, much more established and developed character than Havoc. Havoc, remember, is a very reluctant superhero, and he's a character who's very, very rarely been focal. As a reminder, of course, he was drafted effectively into the X-Men around the time of the mutant massacre aftermath, and he's been sort of grumblingly hanging out with them ever since, as he's watched his girlfriend Polaris become a marauder named Malice when she got possessed by the aforementioned Malice Force. In the lead-up to Inferno, we saw him become romantically entangled with Madeline Pryor, his brother Scott's ex-wife, who eventually manipulated him into becoming the Goblin Prince, effectively her second-in-command in Inferno, against whom he finally at least helped the X-Men face off. So right now, he's suffering both some heartbreak and from the fact that he apparently is very easily manipulated by women. We'll see that as a train of continuity in the story. Right. People talk about this as Cyclops' weakness, but no, man, Havoc's track record is so much worse. And we're going to talk about this at more length and Havoc as a character at more length as we go through here. Man, this series and reading a lot of connected material to it, tracing some of these characters and so reading a bunch of 90s X-Factor, Drove home again how much I like Havoc as a character. He is such an interesting fit for X-Men. He reminds me a little bit of Jean Grey in that I feel like he is a character who was so underserved by the Silver Age and who never quite was able to shake off that lack of characterization. And in fact, that segues quite nicely to the first story we're going to talk about very briefly, which is Pharaoh's Legacy for Marvel Comics Presents number 24 to 31. Oh shit, Pharaoh's Legacy. That means living monolith, doesn't it? Well, the thing is, it doesn't. It just means, you know, his legacy. So the living monolith, which is to say the living Pharaoh before his name changed. Which is to say Alex Summers is Egyptology professor in college. He's heavily tied into the first time Alex Summers showed up back in the Silver Age. It's complicated, but the short version is Alex's powers got triggered because of this dude when otherwise they might not have. And they have a weird symbiotic relationship. You should actually go back and read those issues, not necessarily because the story is good, because it's kind of not, but because 
It's Neil Adams, and the art is amazing, and it is up until Meltdown, and honestly through Meltdown because it informs so much of Meltdown, the visually definitive take on Havoc's powers. Yeah, Pharaoh's legacy is not. So in this story, Havoc is hanging out in Australia still, where the X-Men are based, angsting around about how he can't trust women, apparently, and he runs into a woman named Leela O'Toole, or maybe Layla O'Toole, hard to say, but he saves her from some soldier dudes, and she is very grateful in her hippie-tacular clothes with her awesome feminist retorts to Havoc's hey little lady attitude. They escape, and she explains that she is an SKP from a cult. She was an archaeologist who got inducted into this very, like, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom cult that worshipped the living pharaoh. Well, that ends well. And so Havoc, of course, is A, protective of her, because that's kind of his jam when it comes to any given woman, and B, not very pleased about this whole living pharaoh legacy thing showing up again. And they spend weeks together and fall madly in love, bonding over their mutual interest in digging things up. I guess so. Well, and also in Havoc's powers, because unbeknownst to Alice, she's got a weird relationship with him, feeling all tingly and passing out when he uses them. She basically chalks it up to, you know, fainting a lot because ladies do. Havoc is so easy to play when it comes to gender. You know what he is? He's the Xander Harris of X-Men. Oh, God, he really is. All of his girlfriends end up being monsters or, well, generally traitors. Yeah, and he never quite learns from it. Right. And so, uh, yeah, these um, the people who were after the two of them at the beginning keep coming after them, even after they've had their let's fall in love over the course of a few-week escape vacation experience. Does falling in love usually, like, throw off people following you? Oh, yeah, it totally totally changes your scent. Like, Wolverine probably couldn't drag him after this. I'm pretty sure that's how it works. I'm pretty sure that is not only canonically untrue, but canonically disproven in literally the next story we're talking about in this same episode. Well, regardless, the bad guys are able to find them because they're called the Trackers. Now, I'm not sure why they're called the Trackers, but they are. I mean, obviously, it's what they do. What they do also is dress up like the living pharaoh. They're all wearing that weird golden pharaoh armor. Wait, are they doing this, like, through urban areas? Yeah, kind of. Like, they really are pretty shameless. But then again, this is the Marvel Universe, and, you know. They also employ a group of super stereotypically Australian mercenaries, which makes for a really interesting cultural fusion. It does, yeah. They call Havoc, like, dingo meat, and when he runs away at one point, a scared roo. Australian listeners, can you confirm or deny whether this is, in fact, what a mercenary would call you if you ran away from them in the late 80s? I would never call someone who is running away from me any kangaroo-derived name, because those motherfuckers are vicious, and they will beat you to death. They can't walk backward, though. We learned that that one time. Oh, man. Yeah, any conversation about dumb stuff that happens in Australia always takes me back to last year's summer special. Exactly. Which reminds me that I need to set up this year's, because it's going to be exciting. So, anyway, uh, the trackers kidnap Layla, and Havoc follows them to their Egyptian base, where they make him go into this arena and fight a bunch of them. Now, he ends up using his powers on one of the pharaoh tracker people, only to have that pharaoh tracker person's armor crack open to reveal that it is, in fact, a nine-foot-tall Layla. Wait, what? So it turns out, even though she's still wearing her hippie-tacular, like, uh, headband thing, she is, in fact, a relative of the living pharaoh, as are all of these cultists. And really, she was playing him from the start, just to, like, get him to show up there and zap them all with his powers to find out who was the correct heir to the living pharaoh and could correctly absorb cosmic radiation. At which point, Wolverine shows up. Yeah, so Havoc has escaped, and Wolverine is like, okay, my best friend in the entire world, Alex Summers, you know how we're best friends in the entire world, that relationship we've had established throughout years and years of comics? Spoiler, they are not best friends. This relationship was never established. So it's kind of weird to see Wolverine just show up in Egypt. It's also really weird to hear the way he's written, because he keeps referring to Havoc as kiddo, my boy, and boyo. So here's a question. This leaves me wondering. Was this character originally supposed to be Banshee? Was this a Banshee and Havoc series? Because, I mean, that's Banshee talk there. It kind of is, yeah. I don't think so. From what I understand, it was originally supposed to be just Havoc, but sales weren't so hot, so they brought Wolverine in, because that's what you do. Oh, man. 
I feel so bad making fun of this, but it really entertains me the extent to which Havoc's relationship, like, like Havoc's status outside the Marvel narrative, like, mirrors his status inside the stories. Right, seriously. So Logan and Havoc team up, they re-infiltrate the living pharaoh cultist base, fight against Layla, who is now going by Plasma and is possibly even taller, and they end up winning. They end up zapping the hell out of all the cultists, and Alex utters the immortal prophetic line, And I swear that you're the last woman that will ever use me again. Spoiler. Nope. So, yeah, on the one hand, like, the Meltdown series doesn't really tie into Havoc's past, as we'll get to. The series really does, but the problem I have with that is that Havoc's past is kind of dumb. It's not really very interesting. Yeah, yeah, Havoc doesn't have a lot of past. Havoc's past is a series of false starts and, like, horrible domestic tragedy, and that's kind of it. Pretty much, yeah. So, coming out of the Silver Age, here is what is established about Havoc as a character, like, pretty much in full. He's Cyclops's younger brother. He's got a bachelor's degree. I don't know if he's even got a field at that point, actually. Like, they might establish him as a physicist or as a physics student, but they, I don't know if they actually do. He has a degree in school. He's good at some sports. He's a mutant, but he's a mutant whose powers manifest fairly late. And he is sufficiently freaked out by his own powers to do stuff like basically sell out to Stephen Lang briefly. And wear that terrible hat. And wear that terrible hat. Havoc is... Or a lot of what defines him is lack of definition. And initially, that's just a byproduct of being underwritten. But eventually, and I think most significantly around this era and put to very good use in Meltdown, it becomes a really significant character trait. I went through and read a bunch of Havoc stories when we were preparing for this episode. Like I mentioned, he's one of my favorite characters. He's a character I really consistently like, and he's a character who I really consistently wish people would do more with. For this reason specifically. Because he is a guy who is perpetually out of his depth and three steps behind. He's the superhero who never really wanted to be a superhero, to whom that stuff doesn't come instinctually. And so who models his idea of heroism, his idea of his role and his idea of his identity to an extent on whatever's around him. A lot of the time that ends up being Scott, but sometimes like here, for instance, you see him kind of falling into the genre trappings of whatever he's in. He's influenced by that so directly. And I mean, literally... Mutant X is about that. It's him jumping through universes basically to pass at other versions of himself who've done the same thing. Now, it's really hard to say how much of that was a deliberate choice by writers, how much of that is a real theme based around the character, and how much of it is just kind of putting order to the chaos of his publication history. So, it's something that I associate especially closely with one writer. That is a guy named John Moore. John Moore was writing X-Factor in the mid-90s, which means he also wrote Factor X, which was the Age of Apocalypse basically Havoc and Cyclops book. Which I freaking love. That book does not get enough love. And he wrote some of my favorite Havoc stuff, character stuff. Story-wise, that era is kind of a mess. But his beat on Havoc as a character is, I think, one of the best. And one of the things he really taps in on, especially in the Age of Apocalypse version, is again that mutability. That Havoc is a dude who is effectively the man without a genre. He is the guy who is perpetually in worlds and in roles in which he is out of place. And he's good enough at playing the parts and good enough at passing at it that no one really ever catches him. But he never quite catches up with everyone else either. Like, that is a big theme with regards to him and Scott in most universes where they have any contact that's not just in passing. But again, it's a huge theme in a bunch of story season. And in Meltdown, we're going to see that with him and Wolverine, but we're really going to see it with him and a character named Scarlet, who uses that and manipulates it incredibly effectively. 
And speaking of Scarlet, I guess let's talk about Havoc and Wolverine Meltdown. But first, we already did previously on X-Men, so now it's time for... Previously on Reality, which is to say, The Cold War. Right. Meltdown, as its title implies, is a story that is really heavily rooted in the Cold War. And reading back through this, it came out in 1989, so that's four years into Glasnost. It's two years before the dissolution of the Soviet Union. And I think we need to address this because something I realized this morning is that we have a lot of listeners who weren't alive at this point, which is so weird to me. It really is. But at the same time, children, what the hell? I mean, we were born in the early 80s. And so for a lot of the Cold War that started decades before, you know, we've only read about that in history books, heard about it from family, that sort of thing. But this is, at least for me, this is the era where I was hyper aware of it. And I mean, I know it was somewhat different for you. I was an unsettlingly politically aware preschooler. Basically, I grew up in the peace movement and the nuclear freeze movement. I grew up with parents who really didn't censor a lot of my media and news intake. And I grew up with a lot of Tom Lair, which you wouldn't think makes as much difference as it does. But man, if you were a little kid, Tom Lair is a great route to like modern political awareness from the you know, 60s through the 80s. Yeah, I think in the late 80s, I was mostly paying attention to the real Ghostbusters and the Ninja Turtles. So I was perhaps a little bit less politically savvy than you were. Yeah, I remember you saying that a lot of what you know about nuclear proliferation, you learned from Metal Gear Solid. Metal Gear Solid talks so much about nuclear proliferation and the aftermath of the Cold War. Like, so much. Like, people will just sit there while nuclear hell is pending and tell Solid Snake about the IEEA and stuff for, like, seriously an hour solid. Which, don't get me wrong, is part of what I love about Metal Gear Solid, that it just tells reality to bugger off and just does whatever it wants in terms of giving people enough time to give you a history lesson. But, yeah, that's basically where I gained all of my nuclear history knowledge. So the thing you need to understand about the Cold War, if you're coming in without this historical context, and I asked on Twitter this morning, and... People brought up what they learned about it in school, people who learned about this stuff rather than living through it. And what they mostly brought up was like the 60s and the Bay of Pigs and stuff. Yeah, I mean, X-Men First Class does directly address all that stuff. The movie, that is, not the comic. And I think it's really easy to forget how long that paranoia lasted. I remember when we were in elementary school, I remember the first Gulf War and talking about it in school. And the questions people were asking were, is this going to be a nuclear war? Is this going to be the end of the world? There's a sense now of the apocalypse to what extent we characterize it as a gradual process as something that's, you know, the, the, the zombie apocalypse has overtaken the nuclear apocalypse. But for us as kids, like, that's how the world ends. That was how the world was fairly inevitably going to end at some point. The Soviet Union had been behind what is known as the Iron Curtain. This is a metaphorical curtain, I say, for the folks who grew up mostly learning about it from Rocky and Bullwinkle. Where it is literal. <laughs> I remember that. Um, <laughs> so, and the Iron Curtain basically referred to the degree of secrecy and cultural and political isolation of the Soviet bloc countries. So this was the Soviet Union, but also states like Yugoslavia, for instance. And Glasnost was basically about visibility and transparency and suddenly cultural exchange. It was the first time, like, it involved a drop of a lot of media censorship, so... For the first time, the outside world was really getting a much less filtered view of the Soviet bloc countries, but the Soviet bloc countries were also getting a much less filtered view of the outside world and of themselves and their own politics. A lot of corruption was being suddenly exposed and pulled to the fore. And there was a parallel policy, a parallel movement called Perestroika that was basically about revision and incorporation of more democratic principles into the Soviet government. These were both things that happened under Gorbachev, who was the last leader of the Soviet USSR before it dissolved in 1991. And I think it's important to look at Havoc and Wolverine Meltdown in the context of not just the Cold War, but specifically this era near the end of the Cold War, where it was looking like, hey, maybe things are going to be okay. Maybe the U.S. and the USSR can actually get along and not blow each other to hell. Yeah, there was this sense 
And this is so strange to talk about in a post 9-11 world because the shift in discourse around that and the shift in the discourse around conflict and around nationalism is really, really pointed. Like the before and after difference of how 9-11 feels if you grew up during the Cold War is a really different equation from how it does and doesn't if you didn't. Because around this era, this would have been when we were in like second, third grade, what they were starting to teach and what more and more of the national conversation was, was basically that mutual understanding was the only way to avert Armageddon. Right. You were telling me about that little girl, Samantha Smith, and the letter she wrote. Yeah, yeah. In 1982, Samantha Smith, who I think had been about 10 years old at the time, had written a letter to Andropov, who was Khrushchev's successor as leader of the USSR. Khrushchev, for those of you playing along at home, is a dude who was basically the Soviet boogeyman for a long, long time. He was in Western media most famous for an interview in which he had pulled his shoe off, banged it on the table, and yelled, we will bury your grandchildren. I feel like he would have made an excellent X-Men villain. I mean, yeah, kinda. And that was the U.S. view of the USSR at that point. Because again, Iron Curtain, media blackouts, huge amount of propaganda. So Samantha Smith was this little kid, and she writes Andropov this letter basically saying... Everyone says you're this really bad guy and that you want nuclear war and to take over the world. Why would you want those things? Is that what you actually want? And if it's not what you want, how are you going to stop it? The letter got picked up by Russian newspapers and it got to Andropov. And he responded and basically said, nobody wants nuclear war. No one actually wants this thing. We agree. We are people too. Thank you for seeing us as people. What we actually need is more people asking questions like you. Do you want to come visit the USSR? Do you want to start this conversation? This sounds really small, but it was an incredibly critical step in opening up U.S.-Soviet dialogue in the early 80s. And again, kind of predicted a lot of what would come out of Glasnost. So you have for the first time the sense that maybe the world's not actually about to end. But the reason it's not about to end is that we're starting to humanize the enemies who we've spent half a century building up as the big red menace. Or for them, you know, the capitalist menace. Our nations and our cultures have been so completely cut off from each other for so long that these are boogeymen, and challenging that means challenging and questioning a lot of the driving narratives of both cultures, you know, American exceptionalism, Soviet collectivism, and acknowledging the value in others. And when you have achieved power primarily through one or the other of those, that's a really scary prospect, and you start to see pushback. Meltdown is about that. Meltdown is also about the threat of basically nuclear holocaust as related to paranoia about nuclear power. Again, if you are younger, you've grown up in an age where nuclear power is a standard. Initially, Nuclear power was very, very closely tied in public perception to nuclear weapons. And it was seen as a similar kind of dangerous. And, you know, this is partially a byproduct of its development and what it came out of and the lack of understanding of the science around it. And also catastrophes like Chernobyl, where you saw, you know, the scale of devastation that was possible with nominally nonviolent uses of nuclear power. So you have stuff like, you know, the Cassini protests, which I don't think you'd really see today. So nuclear power and the atom is something that's really tied to X-Men and really tied to comics because it sparked the public imagination incredibly vividly. You know, it was the sense that anything is possible. And as a result of that, it's a heavily misunderstood field. And it's one with a huge amount of apocrypha and myth built around it and a lot of misinformation and a lot of sort of miscontinuity. It is rooted really heavily in that stuff. And if some of those descriptions of the cultural role of nuclear power sound familiar, It's because those are a lot of the ways we describe X-Men comics, you know, that complex narrative, its role in cultural myth, etc. And we love untangling that stuff and sort of teasing out what actually works, what's misinterpretation, what's misimpression, how it connects. We are experts in that. We are not experts in 
nuclear science. And so we have actually pulled in a guest expert for this episode who is going to be coming in after we talk about the continuity to talk some about the science in these issues. That is a friend of ours who is a chemist, all around badass and former associate director of the Reed Research Reactor, uh, Susan Beaver, who is going to be joining us to talk some about the science around this and also possibly her plans for world domination. So Havoc and Wolverine meltdown number one. So yeah, we have this giant introduction which is very sciencey and is actually kind of brilliant. Like, I kind of feel like this should be in high school textbooks because it's a hell of a lot less dry than the way I learned about either science or history. Yeah, no, it's the Jim Ottaviani theory that science is so fundamentally visual that teaching it in comics format actually makes way more sense than teaching it in text format. The opening of Meltdown number one is literally 14 pages of the background of the Chernobyl disaster. And it's really well done, like super engaging. And one of the reasons for that that I want to talk about right away is the artistic team on this book. That's John J. Muth and Kent Williams, and they both have this beautiful, painted, kind of impressionistic style that works so well for this. So we see these, like, yellow silhouettes of scientists at the Chernobyl reactor talking to one another in front of these sort of lines and diagrams of all the sciencey stuff around them. We see close-ups of that standard visual model of the atom with the electron orbits as nuclear fission itself is being discussed. Talking heads are hard enough to make exciting, but showing how atoms interact, like making that exciting, is quite a feat, and they do it beautifully. And they do it in a way that divorces it beautifully from the central narrative. As Miles mentioned, most of the figures in this intro are silhouettes. Most of them are never going to be given faces. And all of this is offset against another very familiar motif, which is two people playing a game of chess. So, you know, take a drink, if you're doing that kind of thing. Probably shitty vodka if we're talking about pre-dissolution Soviet Russia. And these are Dr. Neutron and General Meltdown, and I gotta say, having all this like historical science stuff juxtaposed with dudes named Dr. Neutron and General Meltdown does take you back a little bit, but works surprisingly well. And what they basically are talking about is that all of the actual causes of the Chernobyl nuclear disaster, which we're going to get to when we talk to Susan later, were basically manipulation by these two guys in order to get a huge concentrated blast of radiation into this guy, Meltdown, to give him superpowers or augment his superpowers. It's never quite clear what the deal with his powers are. Well, he's got powers because he can absorb massive quantities of radiation without dying. So that's kind of awesome. So he's clearly got superpowers. This is going to power him up, basically to make him powerful enough to reestablish the Soviet Union's place as a superpower to overthrow the Gorbachev government and reestablish earlier policy. Yeah, they keep talking about the capitalist-influenced decadence that the Soviet Union currently suffers from. Like, it's clear that they are really not okay with the whole glasnost perestroika thing. I got the impression that these were dudes who were specifically overthrown and kicked out during the toppling of a lot of the corruption that happened during perestroika specifically. Yeah, I think so. I mean, the fact that it's general meltdown. Do you think that's on his birth certificate? Meltdown? God, I hope so. Just Mr. Meltdown. It's one of those things like when you're Dr. Otto Octavius or Dr. Victor Von Doom, where like your name really does give you a bit of a destiny. You can choose to accept it or reject it, but you're really going to be interacting with what your name implies regardless. You know the Wade Run of Daredevil actually lampshades that, right? That's kind of awesome. The Victor Von Doom paradox? Well, my favorite thing is in, uh, I think it's Spider-Man 2, the movie, where oh, J. Jonah Jameson yeah. is like, you know, guy named Otto Octavius ends up with eight arms. What are the odds? Wonderful. So high if you're in a Marvel comic. As it turns so out. So high. Yeah, Meltdown is actually a really common Russian surname. Yeah, you know. It's like Smith. That's history. You heard it here first, folks. So here we are 14 pages and a number of minutes into this episode, and we haven't really talked about what's going on with the characters yet. But in fact, here they are in Mexico? In a bar fight, because it's a Wolverine comic. 
And I love that we go from nuclear history and USSR conspiracy to a bar fight in Mexico with Wolverine beating the crap out of and getting the crap beaten out of him by a bunch of random bar patrons and Havoc just sitting there looking all pretty at the bar, basically shaking his head and smiling. So as we talk about that contrast, I think we should talk about the art and how the art team approaches the book. Because this is a weird mix. Now, normally when you see a multi-artist collaboration, you see things, you know, one, one does current, one does flashback. They combine motifs. These dudes divide up story pages and panels based on the focal character. So you have Muth as the central artist on Havoc and Williams as the central artist on Wolverine. And what I love is that even though they both have these painterly styles, well, literally styles where they paint. I mean, yeah, no, they're painters. They're not working in painterly styles. They are painting. Exactly. They complement each other so well. But their styles are still very different. So you see Muth's Alex Summers, Muth's Havoc, as this very pretty man clearly modeled off of photos. Oh, no, of- no, no, no. Dude, he is not just modeled after. Muth is literally straight up painting this dude from James Dean photos. And I really love that because Havoc, we've talked about how he's not a very well-defined character in some ways. So the idea of making him super pretty in addition to being (laughs) naive and well-intentioned, like, I kind of dig that. It works for me. I have so much trouble with that, actually. Like, I'm fine with making him pretty. Making him recognizably James Dean is really, really damn distracting Okay, that is legit. But yeah, later on, he turns into young Peter Capaldi, which is also kind of weird. And then we have Kent Williams drawing Wolverine in this loose, exaggerated, almost cartoony style with, okay, Wolverine's hair. You know how Wolverine's hair is normally pointy? It is out of freaking control in this comic. Like, it is this foot-long tendril on either side of his head flapping about as he, you know, punches people in Mexico and gets punched by them. And it's not just his hair. It's really his entire body. Like, he's drawn super exaggeratedly. And so having a super exaggerated Wolverine hanging out with a much more traditionally painted Havoc is a combination that works really well to accentuate the different personalities they have. And to accentuate the thematic differences. Because, you know, I talked a lot about Alex Summers as a character in the background there. And what this miniseries basically is, is Havoc stuck in a Wolverine plotline. He is out of his element in ways that aren't just about expertise, but they're very much about genre, because this feels like a Wolverine story narratively. The elements that we're going to talk about are ones that you're going to recognize from Wolverine series. And Havoc seems highly entertained by this as they talk about, you know, how this bar fight started. I started it. I started it. How do you figure that? You shouldn't have made that crack about his sister. Traditional response, friend of mine. You got something against tradition? So this version of Mexico they're in is very much genre Mexico. It is mid-century noir reductive racist Mexico, basically. Kind of, yeah. I mean, and it's a little troubling in the same way that Madripoor is a little troubling in its portrayal of Southeast Asia in the Wolverine ongoing. With the additional troubling when you're actually rooting in a real country. That too. But at the same time, if you can get past that, and you know, certainly no worries if you can't, but if you can, just embracing the noirness of all of this is so much fun. So what's with these two dudes being friends all of a sudden? I mean, there wasn't a lot of basis for that in the comic. I mean, there have been times when Wolverine's been comforting to Havoc in his various angst periods. And I certainly, you can certainly make any number of emergency backup Summers Brother jokes. But as far as them being so close as they're portrayed in that Marvel Comics Presents story and as they're portrayed here, I think that's kind of being constructed. And you know, I like it. They're not portrayed as close here. They are on a vacation together. They're buddies, they're comrades, but they're not super close friends. And their relationship in this series reminds me a lot more of Shadowcat and Wolverine and like the Kitty Pride and Wolverine miniseries than Wolverine with a peer. Okay, just that they happen to be in the same place and they know each other, so they're hanging out and helping each other out? Well, we know that Wolverine goes off and does his own thing continually. And I would totally buy that in the aftermath of Inferno, he'd be like, so I'm just going to go get drunk in Mexico for a week. Anyone want to come and have it being like, yes. 
Yes, I do. Yeah, I gotta say, after Inferno, after being the Goblin Prince, getting blitzed in a foreign country where nobody knows your name actually does sound like a very reasonable response. Unless you're Havoc, in which case you will inevitably just make a string of bad decisions. Yeah, their rapport is very quickly established. Their dynamic is very quickly established as they, like, sort of bicker slash make fun of each other back and forth. Well, they've made a wager that the first one to use his powers has to buy beers for the rest of the vacation. And Havoc is not exactly winning, but his approach to this is basically to stay out of trouble and watch Wolverine get into fights. And in the aftermath of this fight, there's a bit of dialogue I really love. Those cigars of yours alone would kill a lesser man. Didn't ask for a healing factor, pal. No matter what I do to it, body just won't quit. Gives you an unfair advantage in the lethal consumables department. Yup. Women will kill you faster. (sighs) No doubt about it. Picking the lethal ones is always my specialty. Hey, cheer up, Alex. You're not dead yet. (laughs) Never say that. But, okay, so another thing that could potentially be troubling in this is you could certainly see a lot of this dialogue, a lot of the plot, as kind of sexist. I mean, many of the female characters we see are, like, femme fatale archetypes and stuff like that. Many being the only female character we see. Ah, yeah, good point. There is one woman in here, but for me, that very much reads as part of and a nod to a genre convention. Again... This is a Wolverine story. This is a straight-up noir spy story, and it plays like that, and it has those trappings. It's it's an experiment in the genre, but it doesn't subvert it. And while I think it's worth examining those elements, they're much more worth examining as elements of that larger genre than they are in this particular case, because it's not particularly an outlier from a lot of standing tropes. Side note, how weird is it to see Walter and Louise Simonson team up to write noir? Because I never would have expected that, but it also does sound like them when they're allowed to use mild profanity and write a lot of death. Yeah, did we mention that they had written this? Yeah, Walter and Louise Simonson, people. Like, it's Walter and Louise Simonson and, and these two amazing painters. This is a killer freaking creative team. Yeah, I would like to officially lodge my complaints against generations of readers, publishers, editors, and comics journalists that this is not considered canon classic. What the hell is wrong with you people? So Wolverine and Havoc don't have too long to uh, talk about how they feel about women and cigars, because very quickly, a bunch of the dudes from that bar fight come after them in a hail of bullets, forcing them to flee toward a nearby red convertible and woman dressed all in black with sunglasses and a cigarette, as one does. What is this, Hawkeye? There's a bit of Hawkeye to it. And or so, there's a bit of this to Hawkeye since yeah, it predates it by how long? Many decades. So they steal a convertible and decide that since that woman would otherwise get shot up, they should bring her along too. And all of a sudden it's a car chase. Yeah. So she's super chill. She is doing her makeup in the rearview mirror. As Havoc worries about the car because the dudes who are chasing them are now in flying cars with like crazy future guns. And Havoc having reasonable priorities, you know. Keep in mind, Logan, that this is not only not our car, but a vintage 1957 Red Thunderbird convertible. <laughs> that guy. and they, I really love Havoc. They do manage to barely escape as Havoc loses his bet by blowing up one of the hover cars after them, only to, when they finally get to safety, be shot by this mysterious femme fatale who's been coming with them and left for dead at the end of the issue. Raise your hand if you didn't see that coming. So I should say it's not quite the end of the issue because there is a little bit of follow-up as Wolverine wakes up in a hospital. Again, raise your hand if you didn't see that coming. I guess the hospital part. What I didn't see coming was the fact that apparently what he's in the hospital for is the bubonic plague? The Black Death? Huh. Yeah, so apparently what happened is that bullet that shot him had a bit of Black Plague stuck in it. He has survived. He is told that Havoc has not, and eventually makes his way to Havoc's grave, which he discovers is, of course, if not empty, not filled with a human body. And I love the way this is drawn, because Wolverine's sitting there kneeling at Havoc's grave, just furious with himself for letting this happen, with his forehead up against the gravestone, 
And then he starts sniffing and just presses his face, like squishes it up against the tomb and just immediately looks so feral. And alas, because I keep on expecting this to happen just because of the way they're drawn, his hair antennae do not perk up when he makes the discovery. <laughs> Unfortunate. Wouldn't that be amazing? Like having a Wolverine meltdown exactly as done, except that his hair functions like the tick's antennae. I'm in favor of this. Let- that would be so funny. Let's have a reprint that's the same except for that part. But yeah, Logan just pulls up the tombstone, uses his claws to shred the dirt in the coffin itself, and finds a bunch of rocks wrapped in a human-sized blanket in there. To which he responds, Ain't Alex, ain't even a family resemblance. I love the implication that, like, if they'd really cared about tricking him, they would have chosen rocks that looked more like Alex. Like Adam X the Extreme, because family resemblance. Work him in. Work him in everywhere. He's not a rock. Close enough. The only thing he really has in common with with Alex visually is that they're both blonde. He knows how to rock. I mean, in a new metal kind of way. Does he, though? You know, I'm sure he's seen a lot of Fred Durst concerts. And you're translating that to knowing how to rock? I think we may be getting off track. Can we just insult Fred Durst some more? I mean, probably. So, okay, that's basically issue one. Issue number two, like, normally we don't always do issue breaks, but I do want to point out that the title of issue number two is Tender Loving Lies, which is the best possible title a story like this could have. That is definitely the title of my late 90s indie band. <laughs> I like the this plan. My late 90s indie band. And the issue opens with Logan, of course, shaking down everybody who might be even close to connected to this. So people at the bar, he finds the cousin of one of the attackers, and it's really nice to see him cutting loose and actually being violent and drawing blood even when he's just intimidating people. Because I'm not really big into violence personally, but for a character like Wolverine, being able to show the stuff that the character would of course do is kind of cathartic and kind of satisfying. Well, and you know the thing about Epic. No CCA stamp. Oh, that's true. The Comics Code did not check out these comics, which makes sense because they're pretty gruesome in places. Yeah, they're specifically for the grown-ups. Which, I mean, Wolverine murders a lot of people in the Wolverine comics too, which are CCA approved. but But it's definitely more graphic in these right here. So he tracks the guys who set them up to a hotel, which is promptly blown up by a dude named Yuri. But of course, Logan knew this was coming because he's a smart shaker down of people for information. And just as Yuri is calling his bosses on a giant late 80s portable phone, Wolverine bursts out of the trunk and shreds the crap out of him. Yuri is specifically calling a boss who goes by the name of Quark. And as distinct from Quark is introduced in the Longshot Limited series some number of years earlier who has absolutely nothing to do with any of this, we will get to Quark shortly. And Logan, I mean, that thing where he's able to cut loose, yeah, right here. He's not really pleased at, uh, you know, people trying to blow him up. And he lifts this person up on all six of his claws very graphically and says, So what's going on there? Before retracting his claws, letting the dude fall to the ground. Nah, don't try and tell me. I'll find out for myself. The violence in this is less graphic than you tend to see in the Wolverine solo series, but also much, much, much more physical. Muth and Williams, but Williams in particular, draw bodies in motion and relative to one another in ways that give them a lot of weight and a lot of impact. Right. There's a fight scene later when somebody's getting their head slammed against a concrete wall and you can feel it. Yeah, Havoc. Poor guy. Yeah, he has a rough time and his rough time, well, I guess less starts than continues with him waking up in the hospital, barely alive, being fed the same story that Wolverine was, which is that they were both shot with these plague-riddled bullets. His friend was shot enough that he didn't survive. And he's like, no, of course Logan would survive. And they're like, dude, 15 bullets full of the Black Death. Wolverine's dead, we promise. So Alex refuses to believe this. And the person who's specifically trying to convince him 
is a woman named Scarlett McKenzie. Now that is a name. You think she's related to Namor? I was thinking Bob and Doug McKenzie, the famous drunken Canadians. Those aren't mutually exclusive categories, you know. Now I'm just imagining Namor showing up at like a Bob and Doug rager party up there in Canada. I'm so into this. I'm so into this as well. They call him a hoser. It's great. So yeah, Scarlett McKenzie, she's fascinating. She's drawn like very traditionally sexily, like, you know, the type of nurse outfit that's not what nurses really wear, but that's a little bit shorter, shows a little bit more cleavage, lots of hair tumbling from that weird nurse hat that I don't know if it's a real thing or not. She's very early 90s Tori Amos. She kind of is, yeah. I know you were wondering whether she might have been photo-referenced from Tori Amos, but I don't think the timeline lines up. Well, reminds me of whether or not she's actually directly referenced from. But we quickly find out that she is manipulating the hell out of Havoc because we overhear her talking to Dr. Neutron and General Meltdown, who identify her as the aforementioned Quark. She is also working for this Russian conspiracy, doing her best to keep Havoc in the dark about his friend being alive. And Quark's deal, she is the third of the Neutron Meltdown triumvirate. And she is a brilliant, brilliant psychologist and behaviorist. She has been specifically running the asylum where uh, Dr. Neutron is incarcerated in some degree of luxury and has been won over to their cause. And she is an expert at manipulation. Now, they've been trying to use subliminal messages to start mind controlling havoc. But they're not working because he's an X-Man and he's been trained to resist that stuff. They're also having a lot of trouble tracking him because he's an X-Man and so currently invisible to electronic surveillance. And so Quark decides, all right, time to get more psychological. He believes that Wolverine's alive. Let's go with that. He seems to be attracted to me, which makes sense given what I'm wearing. Let's definitely go with that. Because if Havoc has one weakness, it is any attractive woman who is remotely sympathetic to him. Well, and who is apparently in danger. That's something that... Neutron and Quark talk about using and exploiting specifically. And there's actually a passage about that, let me find. The greatest delusion we have going for us is Havoc's own need to love, to be effective, and his conviction that he must save his friend. This is in contrast to his distrust of affection and fear of betrayal, apparently the aftereffect of a recent traumatic shock. So that's part of why we place this after Inferno, by the way. So Quark has created a scenario which will turn his needs to our purpose. And so what she pretty soon tells Havoc is that there was this weird spy who was coming after him. And I love the way she plays innocent right here. Can you imagine a real spy? And Alex, of course, is totally hooked because here's a scenario where a pretty woman is in danger, where he's an important part of some kind of story, where he has a friend to save. He gets to be the hero. This is like catnip to him. And now I'm imagining Alex as a cat, which is adorable with little white circles and stuff. And this also gives him a genre to plug into. This gives him a set of roles he's familiar with. And you see him playing that up over the next few issues initially, which I love, like how much he buys into Scarlet's story, to Quark's story. I think we're just going to call her Scarlet from here, probably. Is directly proportional to how much he uses like spy lingo. Like he calls her doll a few times. And then he eventually stops and he's got the color of his coat flipped. Like he's got a lot of really subtle genre cues for the part where he's going along with her, which I love. Like, it's played really subtly. I don't even know if it was deliberate, but it works so well. And again, it sort of works with the very, very mutable, very context-reflective havoc that I was talking about earlier. And it doesn't take long for the aforementioned spy who's supposedly working for the CIA to show up and interrogate Havoc about his friend Wolverine, who has been kidnapped and maybe is being brainwashed by the Russians. The mistake the spy makes, quite deliberately, because everyone's playing Havoc, is to slap Scarlet when she tries to protest at this harsh interrogation, leading Alex himself to deck the spy, knock him out, and tell Scarlet that they have to get out of here, they have to find Wolverine, and she has to come with him because otherwise they'll come back for her. If you're still here after I take off, they'll send more boys like Handsome here. 
They'll take you apart, doll. The way he talks starting here is so much fun. Logan at this point has worked out that Alex is alive and he's tracking them and he ends up at the hospital just after they've left. Unfortunately, once again, the Russians are a step ahead of him and that step involves fairly destructive explosives. This time, Wolverine is not able to get away from the explosion in time. And I love the way this is drawn because he is damn near incinerated and you just see him with his skin all messed up, completely naked, only one of his hair spikes still intact, like just getting blown into a lake and dragging himself out as he starts to heal up. He looks like an animal here. And so seeing the narration, the dialogue coming from him, it really gets across what works best about Wolverine, which is this, like, physically this savage with the mind, yes, of a killer, but also a strategist and also a friend. Does he have peril indicator hair in this miniseries? The number of hair spikes he has remaining in their height is a way to see in what danger he is. Well, it's like the Janeway scale. Early on in the series, before she gets the bob, you can tell how significant the peril that Voyager is in by how unkempt her bun gets. And there's a parallel, gentle listeners, that you've probably never heard, and I've certainly never thought of. Okay, to be fair, Catherine Janeway would do brilliantly in this series. Voyager is the party bus. It is amazing. She would just punch the shit out of everything. I like this plan. Wasn't there one time she turned into a lizard and had sex with Paris? Yes! Star Trek is so great. I know, right? (laughs) So anyway, lizard sex aside, for the moment anyway... So here we have Alex and Scarlet flying a biplane that has been provided and Scarlet has come up with an excuse for that a friend gave it to her to where Logan is supposedly being held. We have Logan just barely following behind, finding his brown and orange uniform in a backpack and deciding to track them. A backpack that he's hidden. It's not like left there for him or something. So he finds the guy that blew up the hospital, kills him too. There's a great shot of Logan's fist at the back of the guy's head and two of his claws coming out of his eye sockets. Oh, dude, that one stuck with me, possibly because I associate it really closely with the milk carton thing in Terminator 2. That makes a lot of sense, actually. And so now we have this chase, which is, of course, being totally engineered by Quark, Dr. Neutron, and General Meltdown. Everybody's being played, or at least everyone American slash Canadian. So speaking of players and people being played, let's go back to the art. I always want to go back to the art. The art is so good. It really is. But one of the things that's cool about the art is the use of overlays and technical diagrams and bits of science referential stuff and the way texture is used in general in this, but there in particular. And it's subtle, but you see those around characters who are planning, who are plotting ahead, who are aware of the larger structures at work. And initially, you see them almost solely associated with Neutron. Eventually, as Havoc starts to catch on, he's going to get some of that coding too. Scarlet realizes that Alex is starting to get suspicious because they land in their biplane and, oh, there's a helicopter nearby they can take as well. Yeah, she's got a friend with a biplane and the friend with the helicopter and the friend with the private jet they can borrow. And, you know, the friends in Soviet intelligence and the friends who are the shadow government of the world. And so since Alex is getting suspicious, she decides, okay, what can I do? What can I play on to make him take his mind off that? I know, jealousy. And so she goes off to, you know, powder her nose and comes back with a trench coat wearing nothing under it. We'll get to why later. And a story that the way they got that biplane, she says, ashamedly, was that an ex-boyfriend of hers had it available and she had to, you know, do him some favors to get it because she just wanted to help Alex so much because Alex isn't like her ex-boyfriend. Alex is different. And so she's playing on his jealousy, his ego, and his protectiveness all at once, and it works flawlessly. She's so good at what she does. And Alex is so bad at picking up on it. She's doing something else, too, and that is leaving a trail for Wolverine to follow into a trap. Exactly. Because she's left her perfume-drenched dress in the bathroom to be found. Now, she's very much going with the plan. She's working really effectively, but she's also having some problems that Neutron 
notices when he's talking to her. Specifically, she's starting to slip too far into the Scarlet character. She's gone from being very clinical in their calls to using Scarlet's voice. She started referring to him as Alex rather than Havoc when she's talking about him to her cohorts. And Neutron is worried that she may be essentially getting gradually caught in her own web. In fact, we'll find that's kind of going on, but they do end up getting to where Logan is supposedly being held, which is a fortress in Carpathia. I don't know anything about Carpathia, except that the name sounds really badass. So I'm just going to assume there are like Viking warriors and barbarians and vampires everywhere. It's pretty much where generic gothic horror is set. Well, there you go. Perfect. Transylvania and or Carpathia. Okay. Well, Transylvania is in the Carpathian Mountains, I think. And they end up in this fortress that's like drawn just so beautifully in this gray, washed out, blurry mist where Havoc decides to go in alone, guided mainly by his incredible Neil Adams power signature, those concentric circles over him. It is and it isn't the Neil Adams powers, because when Muth draws them, when Muth paints them, they've got the fundamental Neil Adams stuff, which is the concentric rings, the varying degrees of line weight, the fact that they move on the plane of the page rather than the plane of his body or costume, which for me, if Havoc's powers foreshorten or turn with him, you're drawing them wrong, like the circles on his costume. I completely agree. But Muth is painting, and Muth, there's an extra level to this because his powers are a layer of line art that's above and texturally very different from the painting beneath it. They're opaque, everything else is very translucent and watercolor, they're very clean lines, everything else is very soft. It gives them an eeriness and an otherworldliness, almost a glow that I don't think any other artist has ever quite achieved. When I think of how Havoc's powers look, I think of Havoc's powers as painted by John Muth. So Havoc's exploring this Carpathian fortress. In the meantime, Wolverine's been following the trail, thanks to this apparently perfume-drenched dress that was left for him by Scarlet in a hotel bathroom. And there's a drone there, like a robot flying thingum waiting for him that tasers the living crap out of him, which gives our Russian antagonist the chance to put a brain-wipe helmet thing over his head and place him squarely in Havoc's path in the Carpathian fortress. And in so, little red panties. In little red, well, you know, briefs, whatever. And so Havoc sees his buddy Wolverine, who greets him with the traditional Carpathian greeting of death, death, death. And they fight so freaking brutally. That thing I mentioned earlier about Havoc getting his head smacked into concrete and just being able to feel the impact as a reader, that's here. And Havoc damn near dies before frying Wolverine in desperation. We talked about the integration of the two art styles here and the way they mesh. What makes this issue work is how they collide. And Havoc is in disbelief because he has killed Wolverine. Wolverine is dead. He fried him with way too much plasma energy, and he's toast. He's just sitting there mourning in the wreckage of what's left of this fortress. And I should mention, too, that Neutron is playing his chessboard through all of this. You get little bits and, and, and asides to it as it's going on. So continue sipping your drink gradually throughout this entire episode. Or something. But thankfully, Scarlet finds a clue. Jinkies! She, she just happens to trip and land on it. What are the odds? What are the odds indeed? But she trips over what is sort of the plans for a nuclear reactor and sort of a map to it and sort of a bunch of notes about it. Very Basically, convenient. she runs across the outline for issues for issue four. Exactly. And what they find out from looking at this, looking at this thing that someone attempted to burn in the Carpathian Fortress but apparently didn't, is that there's another nuclear reactor out there in India. The plant's about to be shut down for maintenance and just have a skeleton crew, so clearly something is going to happen. Well, and it's built on the same plans, the same flawed plans as Chernobyl. Exactly. The same Chernobyl accident that we read a great deal about at the beginning of issue number one, that could happen again. What Scarlet does at this point is convince Havoc that the people who were setting him up are trying to set him up to be killed so that he cannot stop this disaster. And that's why they brainwashed Wolverine and sent him after him. 
which is great because what they're actually trying to do is manipulate him into going absorbing the radiation and firing it back at Meltdown, which somehow will change its structure or concentration enough to supercharge Meltdown, make him into the ultimate Soviet superweapon. It'll do um, what the Chernobyl accident did not will return to the United States with the goal of killing uh, Jimmy Carter and the U.S. Postmaster General. Hey, that's the first episode of the live action tick. That's yeah, different. no, I'm just talking about the Red Scare. I'm not actually talking about Meltdown. The Red Scare is a robot. And so, yeah, Alex, seemingly completely buying this, goes off with her to India. And okay, you know how we have Claremontian narration? This is like Simonsonian narration. It sounds so much like Thor. India, the district of Maharashtra, not far from the Tarapur nuclear reactor, where a long and perilous journey ends in heat, smoke, and terror. A hot wind blows across the land. Dust devils spring to life, spin their way across the arid countryside, and die. And though not every dusty pillar contains a devil... Still, the very air whispers of death. Damn. Right? Couldn't that totally be describing some kind of, like, Asgardian sub-realm of fire and smoke or something? Yes. Yes, it could. And this part just breaks my heart as they fly toward the reactor, toward what's clearly going to be the climax of the story and their helicopter. Havoc is thinking, She's everything I've ever dreamed of in a woman. It's like I've found my personal salvation. But I can't tell her about Logan, not while I still don't know what's going on. If something goes wrong, she can't tell anyone what she doesn't know. And Scarlet, meanwhile... Maybe, maybe General Meltdown won't kill Alex. He's so young and trusting, but so strong. Maybe Havoc will kill the General and Alex and I will be free, if only. Eventually that quark personality is going to reassert itself if that happens, and it's going to end really badly. Well, it'll end badly regardless, and that's the tragedy of this little bit of thought bubble dialogue. Once people start talking like that, you know at least one of them is doomed, and certainly their relationship is. Now, what Havoc mentioned about telling Scarlet about Logan, that's the fact that A, he knew Logan wasn't dead because he didn't use quite enough plasmic energy to kill him. B, he buried him very shallowly so Logan could easily get out. And C, the coat he used as a funeral shroud for Logan contained the map that he and Scarlet found. He's been playing Scarlet a little bit on his own, not thinking she's a bad person, mind you, but for her own safety, so he thinks. Which brings us to one of my favorite pages of this miniseries, and one of my favorite uses of a very specific trope, which is Wolverine's claws cutting up a page layout. This is rare in that it's vertical. And it's vertical in really dynamic ways. It's not just him with the claws out, but it's him literally carving his way up from this grave. And it's just a gorgeously dynamic page. The way Williams plays with this stuff is so raw and so, so kinetic. And yeah, it's, oh man, this is going to be a long visual companion, y'all. I should remind you again, we put those up on the website. If you go to explainthexmen.com, it should be one of the first things you see if you're listening to this on the day it comes out. Long visual companion, long episode, but I feel okay about both of those things for this. So yeah, Alex and Scarlet do get to the reactor in India, and it is like on the very, very edge of meltdown. And they run in, Scarlet in a radiation suit, saying she's going to watch Havoc's back, and pretty soon encounter General Meltdown. He shows up, claiming immediate credit for killing Wolverine for all the other horrible things that have happened. Well, first, they've tried to stop the Meltdown using more conventional means. They've tried to drop the control rods, they've tried to cram them in, but the rods have partially melted, they haven't been able to stop it, which means that the only option left is for Havoc to absorb the energy. And that's when General Meltdown shows up and confronts him. And so there's a big fight. There's a big zappy fight. 
as Meltdown's like, yes, I totally deserve death. You should totally kill me. I feel like General Meltdown should be better about this. They've been talking about playing Havoc this whole time, and he's completely transparent at this point. Yeah, Meltdown is not subtle. He's no quark, that's for sure. And Alex doesn't really buy it. Like, he kind of works out what Meltdown's trying for, and he's like, yeah, no, this is some bullshit, man. What is effective, however, is when Scarlet, who at this point has basically given into the part of her that does love Alex, that does want to do the right thing, shows up to tell Alex to run, and Meltdown zaps her. And it's beautifully drawn, this horrible, horrible impact. There's just these splashes of paint, these long streaks, that's just this very physical art that eventually fades in the page following her getting zapped into just her as smoke. And she's gone. And that is rough for the reader, but of course also for Alex Summers, who at this point is full-on in love with Quark slash Scarlet McKenzie. And doing dumb things for pretty redheads is basically Alex Summers's Achilles heel. So he immediately turns and blasts General Meltdown at full power, fully powering him up. Meltdown is set. Unfortunately for him, he's got one more obstacle in his way. Because, of course, our buddy Wolverine chooses this point to show up. Wake up and smell the coffee, Alex. It's the big bad wolf himself. And this is what he wanted all along. You did good, Alex. Real good. But I think this place is getting ready to blow. See if you can hold the core in check while I have a chat with Chuckles here. Chuckles. And so there's a big-ass fight, and General Meltdown, which is to say General Chuckles, is pretty much invincible. Wolverine cuts the crap out of him and the wounds just close right back up. It's not going so well. Yeah, he straight up disintegrates one of Logan's arms around the Adam. That is my most vivid memory of this issue from when I was a kid, because I first read this when I was pretty young. And so this panel of Wolverine just looking in shock and disbelief at his arm when his forearm is just a pair of adamantium bones, like all of the flesh, all of the muscle of this very beefily drawn character is gone with seared flesh at the very edges of his hand and of his elbow. And it's gruesome. It's brutal. But what Logan has that Meltdown does not is a big stack of partially melted control rods. Now, we'll get to how those work shortly, but he manages to throw them javelin-like one after another into Meltdown and to stop him from continuing to vampirically absorb energy from Havoc. And to essentially destroy him, or at least apparently destroy him. Because yeah, General Meltdown, as this happens, first in disbelief and then in terror, fades away himself to nothing, to just smoke. Meanwhile, Havoc has absorbed all of the radiation. He has to get rid of it. He blasts it up into space. Again, God, the visuals. And keep in mind, this is like all of the nuclear radiation from a freaking nuclear reactor meltdown and this general meltdown dude who probably makes it even bigger. So yeah, seeing this red and green paint scratch just come up from him and come up from Earth going into space like longer than the diameter of the planet itself is intense. It's really different from the way his powers normally look when he hits that overload. Yeah, it's clear that something is very, very wrong here. Yeah, this is credibly the dude who is later on going to absorb most of a star. Exactly. And there's this great Kraroom sound effect that uh, reminds me again of Walter Simonson's run on Thor. And so they're okay. Scarlet's dead. Meltdown's dead. The reactor is very dead. And probably if any satellites were in space where Havoc zapped, they're probably dead too. But Havoc and Wolverine are alive and mostly intact. Yeah, alive, but not particularly happy. Alex is still convinced that Scarlet McKenzie, this woman he never knew as Quark, was a good person. You know, it was Scarlet who was the real hero. You should have seen her, Logan. She was magnificent. Like a wonderful dream who got swallowed up by a terrible nightmare. I can't believe she's gone. I can't even visit her grave. 
Everything I touch seems to turn to dust. But at least this time, I loved someone who was good and true. And Logan turns to Alex. Alex, about Scarlet, she... And he pauses and thinks for a sec. She was something special, buddy. You don't go finding girls like her every day. But for now, buddy of mine, I got a powerful thirst and you owe me a lot of beers. But in view of our successful and continuing partnership, I might agree to limit my consumption to, say, two or three cases. Might even let you have one if you behave yourself. Don't do that, Logan. Don't let Alex drink. He'll fall in love with another supervillain. He's basically a goldfish. But I love this part because one of the things we've been hit with again and again is that what Wolverine values probably more than anything is innocence. And Alex, for all of his flaws, for all the dark shit he's done, is inherently an innocent. He's inherently naive because of the way he wants to look at the world, because of the way he wants the world to work. And so Wolverine preserving this by not telling him about Scarlet, which wouldn't really accomplish anything, I like that. That fits. Well, it might teach Alex a little bit faster to, you know... Avoid every woman ever? I mean, honestly, if you're working from a pattern, that's probably not a bad idea. But that's the end of Havoc and Wolverine Meltdown. Does it have huge continuity effects? I mean, not really, aside from some character development. It has tiny continuity effects. So I want to talk about this for a sec, because I looked this up in exhaustive damn detail. As far as I know, only two writers have ever referred back to this series in continuity. Those are John Moore, who I talked about a little bit earlier, and Ivan Brandon in the 2012 Wolverine ongoing. Although Scarlet does show up as an important character in Age of Apocalypse. Which, again, is Moore. Oh, well, there you go. Yes, Scarlet is the character who comes back the most, by which I mean in six whole issues. She is a significant character in Age of Apocalypse in the Factor X series. She shows up in the 616 and the X-Factor issues that immediately follow that, X-Factor 112 and 113, in which she is working at odds with someone named Fatal, trying to lure havoc to a secret destination. What we'll find out eventually, and it's never entirely explained how she's there. I believe she is working for Sugarman, who's actually the Age of Apocalypse Sugarman, which implies that she's a clone or a recreation of the Earth 295 version. Meltdown also shows up once briefly later. Not a hugely significant issue, but it does happen. Again, yeah, Meltdown shows up in the Ivan Brandon Wolverine run. Right. And Brandon actually, when I was talking about this, tweeted at me and said that his editor at the time mentioned that no one had ever brought back that character. And I searched, and Dr. Neutron has also, as far as I know, never reappeared. And that's so weird to me, because how can you not put Scarlet as an Easter egg in Red Room stuff? Like, she's so... Oh, like Black Widow stories. heavily... Like, so much of Black Widow's story is rooted in that sort of throwback Soviet ideology and Black Ops. And I feel like these guys are such obvious connections to that, but they've never turned up again. No one has ever used them again. So unfortunate. But... If you want to check out this story, then it's Sun Unlimited. Uh, it's in, they're sort of like small trade paperbacks. That's the form we have them in, like these sort of perfect yeah, bound they're, they're double size issues. issues. The publication date in the issues is 1989. They were 350 at the time, which was a lot in 89. But they are real pretty. So that covers the plot of Meltdown. And I think I want to talk about the atomic science of it. I have tons of questions. So it is my pleasure to once again introduce the guest expert we mentioned earlier in the episode who's going to talk to us about basically the atomic science end of this and specifically nuclear reactors, Susan Beaver. Hi. Hey, thanks for joining us. It is fantastic to be here. Thanks for having me. So you used to essentially run a nuclear reactor, right? Yes, I was certified by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission to be both an operator and a senior operator at the Reed Research Reactor, R-112, for those of you keeping track. And later, I was the associate director for a year. So to get straight to the point, did you ever have to deal with supervillains trying to absorb a huge amount of power to bring back the USSR? 
looking back on it, um, no, I, I, I can't recall that happening more than once or twice. So not really a daily occurrence, but uh, not not really a thing we had to deal with that much. Well, this was in the mid-aughts, too. And you got to remember, Meltdown was in 89. So presumably there have been, you know, regulatory advances since then. They've got stuff in place to deal with that, right? Yeah. And most of the Soviet superheroes have retired by now or they were like really old. So they were a lot easier to sort of shuffle off when they did show up. So. <laughs> Come on, Gramps. It's time to go home. Don't yeah. feel yourself full of cosmic energy just gonna take yeah. reference back to the terror now <laughs> yep but yeah so one of the reasons we wanted to have you on was to talk about the science in this series and also the nuclear history let's begin at the beginning because again we've got this huge 14 page intro that's a detailed breakdown of what went wrong in chernobyl right and actually as i was reading this i was pleasantly surprised by how good both the science and the history were now i'm not an expert on chernobyl nuclear reactors in the united states are made and designed very differently than nuclear reactors in the Soviet Union were. Um, the nuclear reactor that the Reed reactor that I served on, I suppose that I was an operator for, um, is actually something that's called a trigger reactor. is designed by General Atomics to be very, very super safe. It's not a power reactor, and even power reactors in the United States are designed very differently from Soviet power reactors. Ours are designed to be inherently a little bit safer because they have what's called a negative temperature coefficient rather than the Soviet positive temperature coefficient. Soviet reactors, as they get warmer, as they go up in power, they actually get more efficient and go up in power faster, whereas reactors in the United States are built so that when they get warmer, when they go up in power, they actually get less efficient. So there's a dampening effect. Um, instead of an accelerating effect. And that's one thing that wasn't talked about in these issues, so I wanted to sort of bring it up. So when we talk about nuclear power in the United States, I want to lean on it can be dangerous, but we're not going to have the problems that happened at Chernobyl. Well, they were a really specific mix of design flaw and human error, right? They really were. There was a lot of human error, and this book talks a lot about the human error that was going on at the time. The bad communication between the people on the ground at the reactor and scientists who might say, guys, stop that. The decision to continue the experiment when the conditions on the ground weren't actually what they had planned on starting with. They had planned on starting at a steady state of 700 watts, I think it mentions in the comic, and they had dropped down to much lower power and actually weren't really compensating for some of the problems that you get at lower powers. So that's all in there and that's all correct. So there were two reports put out on Chernobyl by the uh, International Atomic Energy Agency, IAEA. Um, and the first one had come out probably as the Simonsons were doing their research on this issue and it was widely available and it really talked about the human error uh, involved. Later reports talked about the design flaws of the reactor a little bit more, and even places where the design had been better than the actual construction. So it wasn't all human error at the reactor, even though that was definitely a major cause of the meltdown. One of the intersections of those had to do with the control rods, right? So stepping back a little bit, for the uninitiated, what do control rods do? Like Their function's kind of obvious from their description, but how do they actually work? How do they work? Well... When you have a nuclear reactor that's at power, 
you have a self-sustaining chain reaction. You have a fission event. It spits out neutrons. Those neutrons cause more fission events, and that's actually really well described in the beginning of the book. A control rod will absorb the neutrons. Without neutrons, you can't have more fission events. So control rods are made usually out of a combination of boron and something to give the boron a little structure. The boron absorbs the neutron, turns into something that doesn't spit out any more neutrons. Fewer neutrons in the core, lower power. The control rods on the Chernobyl reactor, there were two kinds of control rods. One of them could be removed manually. I don't really mean like they went into the core and pulled them out by hand, but they could tell the system to remove them and then they couldn't be put back in by computer control. So that's what they were doing in order to raise power when they had gone too low in power. They manually removed a bunch of control rods and they moved so many control rods out that they didn't have enough control rods under system control to lower the power to shutdown or safety. Shutdown is a term that means there are not enough neutrons to sustain a chain reaction so you don't have any power. The other problem with the control rods, besides them being manually stuck out and they couldn't actually move them in when they had the emergency, was that the very tip of the control rod wasn't boron at all. I think it was a graphite plug. So these control rods were moved through channels and the channels were filled with water. The uh, Chernobyl reactor wasn't just cooled with water but water actually absorbed some of the neutrons, so it acted as a second sort of backup control rod. The water that was in the control rod channels was in the process of absorbing neutrons. When they pushed the control rods in, the graphite that was in the tip of the control rod actually forced the water out of the channel and increased the amount of neutrons available. It actually made more power. So when they hit that button AR5 or something that they mentioned, that's their scram button. I can tell you a story about scram yeah, later. Yeah, so, so what is scram really quickly, actually? Yeah, very quickly, scram is the term that we in the United States use to say the shut down the reactor all at once right away. It just means all control rods in. So yeah, the controllers at Chernobyl hit the scram button and immediately got a power spike as those graphite plugs displaced some of the water. And that power spike was what caused the steam explosion and the meltdown because all of a sudden you had a huge surge in power. And then the control rods, when the rest of them followed in, weren't enough to dampen that. They weren't because at that point, when we say meltdown, we mean that the actual casing around the fuel had melted and then you can't get the control rods in there. Your geometry of your core has massively changed. The top of the core blew off, the bottom melted out, liquid uranium poured through the cracks in the bottom of the reactor and pooled in the basement. It was really a bad scene. I don't want to go to that place. That sounds horrible. Nobody wants to go to that place. <laughs> Except for the woman who motorcycles through and takes amazing pictures. Oh, that's true. Although that's after the fact. Yeah, but, significantly. Okay, so I keep coming back to the word scram. What's, what's the deal with that? All right. Well, scram... Actually, you were talking about narratives and the stories that we tell ourselves around nuclear power. There's the story that SCRAM is an acronym. Linguistically, we've pretty clearly figured out that this is actually a backronym. It's something that was back retconned 
onto the original acronym, but the story is pretty fantastic and it's a bit of nuclear uh, reactor operator lore. So I like to tell it anyway, even though I know it probably didn't actually happen. And the story comes from Chicago Pile 1, which is the very first nuclear reactor in the United States. It was built during World War II. And it was literally like a pile, right? This is this like uranium and graphite and carbon bricks yeah. just stacked in a specific configuration. Early nuclear research was terrifying and awesome. Yeah. There were very poor safety standards when they were building Chicago Pile 1 because nobody knew what was going to happen. In fact, nobody really knew what was going to happen when they turned it on. Nobody had made a self-sustaining nuclear chain reaction before in this kind of setting or in any setting. Yeah. An act of concern is that it was just not going to stop and it was going to wipe out the Earth in the next several hours or spark up the atmosphere. I should say, if you are coming at this like I am from a layman's perspective and interested in a much more in-depth history, the book The Making of the Atomic Bomb by Richard Rhodes is a phenomenal and very accessible read. I will link to it in the, as mentioned, highly, highly recommended. Yeah, so Chicago Pile 1, dangerous pile of graphite and uranium and some other things for use as reflectors. And basically, instead of having control rods on motors, they were just like walking up and sticking them into the sides to try and shape the reaction. But because of the concerns of possibly blowing up the earth or igniting the atmosphere, they wanted something that was definitely going to shut down the reaction. So they made one giant control rod and stuck it right in the middle of the core. And then in order to do experiments, they had to winch it up using a rope and a pulley system. So they would pull it up until it was hovering over the core and then tie it off at the wall. Next to the tie off at the wall, they stationed a graduate student, figuring they're expendable. And the graduate student was to stand there with an axe. And if anything went wrong, they would signal him. He would cut the rope with the axe. The control rod would fall and everybody would be saved. And his title was the Safety Control Rod Axe Man. <laughs> okay, I have the wrong title at work. I'm just a system administrator. I need to fix this stat. So I've actually heard that story before, but specifically as the origin of the term Axe Man, as the person with the power to come in and shut everything down. I have no idea if that story actually does connect to Axe Man or not. I do know that it doesn't really connect to Scram. <laughs> But uh, but it's a great story. Anyway. So speaking of control rods. Yeah. So there's that scene at the end where Wolverine's fighting Meltdown and he's this like invincible nuclear Goliath and just starts impaling him with control rods. So based on what we know of physics, with the caveat that Meltdown may not be the most realistic concept ever, what's the deal with that? Would that work? That's a very good question. As far as I can tell, they go back and forth on exactly how Meltdown's powers work. In the last fight, there's a conflation between different kinds of radiation, which actually starts as soon as they get to the nuclear reactor. And this is something that bothers me. You know, whenever you're an expert in something and you read a comic or you watch a TV show or you watch a movie and all of a sudden they start talking about your field and you just go, oh, no, please. For me, it's radiation. And that's really unfortunate because a lot of people talk about radiation and it's very, very rare to see it done correctly. The conflation that's going on in this final issue of the miniseries is really between two basic types of radiation. There's ionizing radiation and there's neutron radiation. Ionizing radiation is what we're mostly familiar with. Gamma radiation, the kind that gives you superpowers. And then there's beta and alpha radiation. All of those types of radiation will give you cancer. None of those types of radiation will make you radioactive. Usually, 
That's the only issue with differentiating between ionizing radiation and neutron radiation. Most people, if they're going to make a radiation mistake, they say, oh no, there's gamma radiation. We're becoming radioactive. So that's what you hear, you know, the concerns about like irradiated food. In right. The, in, again, actually about this era. Exactly. You hear irradiated food. You say, oh no, they've made my food radioactive. That's not the case. You may or may not have other health concerns about radiated food. It is not radioactive. But in this issue, they actually go the other way. They're talking about neutron radiation. Neutron radiation will make things radioactive. If something absorbs neutrons, it will become unstable and it will create more radiation. That's like Fiesta Ware, right? Ah, yes. Um, Fiesta Ware actually has a uranium glaze on it. Fiesta Ware made up to a certain date does. That's, that's an important line. Uh, sorry. Orange Fiesta Ware made up to a certain date may have uranium in the glaze. You can tell by pointing a Geiger counter at it if you happen to have one of those handy. Or if you happen to have a friendly local research reactor. Yeah, but uranium in the wild is not a neutron source. It's actually very difficult to make neutron radiation. There are two basic ways to do it, and one of them is a nuclear reactor. The other one is what that guy called the radioactive Boy Scout did. Um, which is to make something called a neutron howitzer, which sounds way cooler. A neutron howitzer is uh, an alpha particle source, uh, which is something like americium, which is what's in your smoke detectors, or uh, plutonium is an alpha-only source. It, it emits alpha radiation. You smash that together with some beryllium. Alpha particles plus beryllium gives you neutrons. You have to get a lot of radioactive material to do this. Or you make a nuclear reactor, which is even more difficult. Uh, you can't really do that in your backyard like, the, like that Boy Scout did. But if you Google radioactive Boy Scout, you can find a story of a guy who uh, who actually did make a neutron howitzer in his backyard. And that was probably not the best idea, but it's lore. So Havoc and Meltdown are in the core of the reactor here. The geometry of that space is a little bit confusing because a core is actually sort of a solid object. There's no like inside of it that you can go. It's full of uranium and cooling materials and graphite, and it's not a room that you can walk into. But they're on top of the core. And here we have the thing that I'm not an expert in, which is Havoc's powers and how they're written. I can do this one. Havoc absorbs and metabolizes energy. That is the extent of the level of detail as relevant here. What type of energy varies? It's established fairly solidly canonically that he can recharge from pretty much any energy source. Usually the relevant one is the sun and you know, solar radiation, but later on he is going to absorb most of a star. He's going to be able to siphon off energy from a bunch of different things. And the form in which he then recycles, or what, what he recycles it into, which is what Meltdown specifically wants to absorb, it's usually just described as either energy or plasma. Right. Plasma bursts. So this is where I start giving a side eye to the science. He turns nuclear energy into concentric circles. Right. Well, concentric circles I'm totally okay with, especially when they're painted as beautifully as they are in this miniseries. My problem is with the absorbing of radiation from the core of a nuclear reactor, because what he says he's doing is absorbing radiation. Can he absorb neutron radiation? Neutrons aren't charged. The only energy that they have is kinetic energy, so he's absorbing them and they're just sort of falling to the ground. Um, he's just standing there in a pile of neutrons. The issue is that 
neutrons go in a straight line unless they bounce off something. So the neutrons that are getting ejected from the core are hitting everything in that room and becoming radioactive. So Uh, he'd need to be able to not only absorb them, but attract them. Yeah, you do that with gravity. And I don't believe that Alex is arbitrarily gravitationally massive, but only with regards to the neutrons in the room. That seems a little fishy to me. Anyway, he's absorbing all of this energy. I believe that he's absorbing the heat. He's absorbing the gamma rays. Sure, that sounds fine. I'll give him the beta particles and the alpha particles, even though those are particulate and they're not rays. They're not solar radiation. But okay, I'll give you all that. I'm not really sure about the neutron radiation. So my issue is that when Alex and Wolverine leave, they should both be really, really radioactive. I don't exactly know what the neutron cross-section of adamantium is, but if it's anything like stainless steel, Wolverine should be radioactive for a good long time after this issue. Long time, rough time frame? Cobalt-60 has a half-life in the decades, so we're saying, like... He should be radioactive enough that you don't want to stand next to him for about another century. Oh, man. Well, thankfully, he'll live that long, probably. Yes. But, okay, so I want to go back to the thing with Meltdown and the, and the control rods, though, because yes. it's a glorious image. So he has it taken is. all of this radiation, possibly neutron, possibly otherwise, from Havoc, and then he just gets impaled a whole lot. And the impaling, I guess, isn't that big of a deal, but the absorbing yeah, of the radiation. that's just sufficient force. Right. Speaking of which, and I need to storify this, this week a bunch of our listeners sat down and calculated the amount of force generated in that scene in Inferno where Colossus ends up on an ice slide and punches through Nastier. I love our listeners. Um, I'm going to storify this. It was an amazing thread. But anyway... Well, it is implied that Meltdown's powers are sort of like a nuclear reactor. They are nuclear fission-based, in which case, if that's true, then control rods would be the ideal thing to hit him with. If if the way that his power works is that he is creating nuclear fission within himself, and that is his his power, then he will need a self-sustaining chain reaction. He'll need neutrons to function. Would the placement matter? Should Wolverine be concerned about, for example, spacing the control rods evenly? It would matter, but he's actually a fairly small target as nuclear reactors go. He's about the size of the Reed Research Reactor, actually, and we only have three of them. So putting him in the center is probably the best because the center is going to be the space of the highest neutron flux. But really, once you've got enough control rods in there, you're probably going to be fine. This is an involved topic. Susan has offered to write up a little bit more and send us some links that we can stick in the visual companion to this episode. So if you are interested in more of the actual science behind Havoc and Wolverine Meltdown, we will have those resources for you. But at this point, unfortunately, we are going to have to wrap up the episode because we are hitting the clock limit. If unsupervised, I can talk about radiation, nuclear physics, and radiation health physics for hours. It's terrible. Like us with X-Men, basically. Well, and it really never stops being interesting, which is the thing. Like, I feel like we are hitting the explanation chain reaction point where we're just here until midnight. (laughs) Yup. But yeah, Susan, thank you so much for being on the show. This has been awesome. Thank you for talking about, you know, actual science-y stuff on our Silly X-Men show. Well, thank you for having me on. and Thank you for giving me an excuse to read this series. It's terrific. And best of luck in your future career as obviously a supervillain, I assume. Thank you very much. And we should say, Susan is also the only person who we've ever met who's actually had a birthday party in a nuclear reactor is the coolest thing ever. Not like, you know, in the core, because we learned about why well, that would be Well, you can't be point. in the core, because well, it go. takes up physical space. <laughs> awesome. We know this now. We do. So yes, Susan, thank you. And in the meantime, I believe you've got questions. 
Rambunction Junction asks on Tumblr, This isn't a strictly X-Men-related question, but more a joint X-Men-Marvel question. Which is stronger, vibranium or adamantium? I thought that each of those was at one time or another said to be the strongest material known to man. Could Wolverine successfully cut, or at least scratch, Cap's shield? Okay, so this is more complex than you would expect, as I'm sure comes as no surprise with comics. But the answer is sort of. So true adamantium, yes, there's a thing called true adamantium, I mean, in the comics, not in real life, is in fact stronger than vibranium, the Wakandan metal that we just saw a bunch of in the Civil War movie, and it can in fact cut through it. So that's what's on Logan's skeleton, or at least it's what was on there initially, because apparently his healing factor eventually turned it into something called beta adamantium, which is basically the same thing, but also allows for bones to function inside it, which, you know, uh, science, because. But Captain America's shield is not actually made of vibranium, it's made of an alloy called proto-adamantium, which is an alloy of adamantium, steel, and it is implied vibranium, which absorbs and redirects vibration, which is to say impact, which is to say just about everything. So originally this was actually not supposed to be adamantium, it was actually an error in the official handbook of the Marvel Universe that said that was involved, but it turned out the error was more popular than the truth, so that went through. But regardless, adamantium uh, was actually discovered when someone was trying to replicate proto-adamantium. So there you go. As for proto-adamantium, I'm actually just going to quote from the Marvel database here. It has only ever been damaged or destroyed four times, referring to Captain America's shield. By Doctor Doom with the powers he stole from the Beyonder, by Thanos with the power of the Infinity Gauntlet, by Molecule Man and his total control over matter, and by the Serpent after augmenting his strength with the fear of people from all over the world. So, definitely not Wolverine's claws. So, basically, Triadamantium is better than Vibranium, but Proto-Adamantium, what Captain America's shield is made of, is basically better than anything. Except for omnipotence and fear. So there you go. There Science! You go. An anonymous listener asks, The obvious question related to Meltdown is this. At the end, we see more chess pieces with the implication we should see more scheming. What other two characters would you want to see paired in a second miniseries like this? When you say like this, I'm going to go with Autor, limited series, some kind of one-off adventure probably involving infiltration and mystery. And I came up with a couple different combinations, and they're both in varyingly similar molds to this. The first one is, I guess, a badass redhead team-up, so I would put together the Black Widow and Phoenix 2, Rachel Summers. That would be awesome. And Black Widow would tie right into a plot like this. Right, and they've got very complementary power sets. I think their personalities, they, they would make a really interesting team. They would work together in ways that would be tense enough to drive the narrative, but with enough overlap and enough eventual collaboration to resolve it. So my other combination is a slightly less likely one, and that is Mirage and Benjamin Deeds. Benjamin Deeds from the Bendis Uncanny recently? Yeah. Huh, okay. Yeah, the kid who's a chameleon who just mirrors whoever he's talking to. That would be a bizarre and excellent dynamic, and also it would get Mirage back in the comics, which I'm in favor of. It would, because Mirage is so badass and so direct, and Deeds is a kid who's really reluctant to use his powers, period, but whose powers are all about subtlety. And who's very much kind of an underdeveloped character in a lot of the same ways that Havoc is. He is a chameleon in many of the same ways that Havoc is. I think Mirage is generally fundamentally more interesting and more fun than any other character you might happen to have on hand. But I think she makes a really good Wolverine counterpart in that particular dynamic, too. I'll buy that. I would also keep it to sort of a general parallel. And I would actually go for Banshee and Marrow just because of the way they would play off of each other. Huh. Yeah, totally. I mean, you have basically wisdom versus impulsiveness, age versus youth, Sonic Scream versus pulling your bones out and throwing them at people. But you do have characters who are both very full of passion, regardless of how they channel that passion. 
So I'd like to see that kind of like mentor student or even chaperone person really going around doing things they shouldn't dynamic within some bizarre conspiratorial environment across the world. This gives me another idea, and this wouldn't be a comic because it's specific to the X-Men cinematic universe, but you could do that with Apocalypse-established Mystique and Storm in some interesting ways, too. Plus, then we'd see Jennifer Lawrence and Alexander Ship get to hang out, and I have nothing bad to say about that. I mean, I want a Mystique and Storm save the world and do spy stuff movie anyway. That would but, be glorious. But you could do something built around this particular model and that push and pull. We are an entirely listener-supported podcast, and some of those tiers of support come with acknowledgement on the show from a number of fictional characters. I believe that this week I am turning this over to a long-neglected, or at least often-neglected, supervillain, the one and only General Meltdown. Comrade, take it away. This capitalist dog dares threaten us. Threaten Mother Russia? I think not. My power, the power of the atom! will ensure the fall of the West, the immortal reign of Soviet might. But I need more. Comrade Quark, the man they call Havoc is not enough. Bring me Fred and Carolyn Lualier. Drive them to rage and to madness. Their foolish attempts at vengeance shall fuel my omnipotence. And then the glory of the Soviet Union shall burn again as bright as a star. Jay and Miles explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon, and produced by Kyle Yount, host of the Godzilla podcast, Kaiju Cast. New episodes of our show come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, visual companions to every episode, along with interviews, fan art, recaps, reviews, and more. And thank you again so much to our nuclear expert, Susan Beaver, for joining us today to talk about the reactor physics of Havoc and Wolverine Meltdown. This podcast is totally listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and stay ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, Miles is going to be out surfing the spaceways, but I will be here in the studio, and I will be joined by Max Carlton of the comic strip Waiting for the Trade to tell you all about the action, angst, and armor of 2011's X-Men anime. 